22-30. John 3, 22-30. After this, Jesus and His disciples came into Judean territory, and there He spent time with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming to Him and being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now a dispute came about between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew concerning ceremonial washing. So they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one who is with you on the other side of the Jordan River, about whom you testified, see, he is baptizing and everyone is flocking to him. John replied, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but rather I have been sent before Him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands by and listens for Him rejoices greatly when he hears the bridegroom's voice. This then is my joy, and it is complete. He must become more important while I become less important. Thank you, John David. Good morning, church. It's great to see each and every one of you this morning. Uh, It's great to see those of you that are visiting, that are visiting family members. We thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Maybe you're here and you're visiting and you're looking for a church home. It's our prayer that you will consider the body that meets here at Savannah. And we want you to know, if you're looking for a perfect church, it's not right here. We are not a perfect people. But we are a group of people who love God, who strive to serve God, even in our imperfections. So if you're looking for that kind of family atmosphere, a place where people love one another, uh, even sometimes despite, despite those imperfections, then this is the family for you. And so we want you to consider that as well. Uh, I want to bring your attention to a couple of things uh, that's in the bulletin just by way of, of uh, pushing and causing us to think about those things. There's a group this summer that will be going to Miami. Um, we support the work there in Miami, and this mission group is hosting a date night for parents. So parents, if you have children, this is on Friday, March the 30th. begins at 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. Uh, it's just $20 per family. Uh, Uh, Your kids will be well taken care of and fed and uh, enjoy that night. But we want you to be aware of this. And uh, it's it's a service for you, but it's also to uh, help our mission trip that will be taking place this summer in Miami. So if you uh, have children and would like to be a part of that, please take advantage of that. Also on March the 25th, you remember I mentioned this Wednesday night. uh, Several months ago, we met and came up with several ideas of community service and Outreach. Uh, a couple of those things have been going ongoing. Uh, the Teen Challenge uh, meal uh, that we've been doing, and also the door knocking that we've been uh, doing. Uh, we had a room full of people. We put a lot of things on the board, and we're going to have another meeting, not to add more things, but then to see what things that we can do uh, that we put on there that we have not been involved in. And so if you can be a part of any, either one of those, uh, we hope that you will take advantage of that. Uh, I want you to keep your Bibles turned to John chapter 3 there. Uh, we will notice some other scriptures but, uh, that we'll turn to, but that's going to be our primary location. Weddings are beautiful, aren't they? John, it's good to see you, brother. Uh, it just dawned on me you're sitting there. Man, it's, it's great. John's been recovering from knee surgery. We've been praying for him. And John, it's good to see you. Weddings are beautiful, aren't they? And, and when, we, when we attend a wedding, 
And we walk into those auditoriums that are beautifully decorated and we're noticing all those decorations and everyone's dressed up, but then the wedding starts. And there's a moment in the wedding that, that everyone stands and we notice the bride. And the bride is, is there and now all focus is on the bride. And then the bride comes down the aisle and uh, the bride is there, the groom is there, all the attendants are there. And when that time of the wedding takes place, what is the central focus of that wedding? Well, everyone knows it's the bride and the groom, Right? The bride and the groom, they're there, it's their wedding, they are the central focus. Well, in our text today, in John chapter 3, we want to notice a similar situation or a similar illustration that John brings out, John John brings out, uh, that also gives a similar focal point. Now, there'll be, there's a lot of things in our text today that John, read, uh, that John David read for us. And there's a lot of things that we will mention, but we will not talk about or go into detail about those things. But we want to mention those because they're in the text and they're important. And we'll talk a little bit about those, but I think there's a central focus point in our text today. So, let's see what's happening and taking place. Remember, this is following... Uh, the story of Nicodemus, of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. That great love story that we talked about uh, last week. And then, follow up from John chapter 1, now John the Baptist comes comes back on the scene. And the Bible tells us that Jesus and His disciples, they go out into the countryside. uh, The land of Judea. And they're baptizing. They're teaching and they're baptizing. However, if you look over in John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the Bible will reveal to us that it's not actually Jesus doing the baptizing. It's His disciples. But they're teaching and they're baptizing. John the Baptist also, in a similar area, is also baptizing, teaching and baptizing. And um, John is... Not in the same area Jesus is, but 20 to 30 miles away from there. And we see here in these scriptures, it's revealed to us that baptism, purification, ceremonial washing, that's all important and very familiar to the Jews. You remember back in the Old Testament, uh, priests... They would at certain times and for certain reasons have to go through these ceremonial washings and cleansings, right? The Jews were aware of that. Also, under the law of Moses, uh, if you were to touch something unclean, in order to, um, uh, to really get back in, into graces and get back to where you needed to be, you had to go through this ceremonial cleansing. And so the Jews understood that. John chapter 1, John talks to us about the baptism of Jesus, shows us uh, that baptism. Uh, Also in John chapter 3, he mentions to Nicodemus, there's an important thing here that you have to think about, Nicodemus. You must be born again. And then in our text today, we see listed several times the idea that Jesus and His disciples are teaching and baptizing. John and His disciples are teaching and baptizing. And so we see that baptism is important in Scripture. In fact, the Greek word uh, that's translated baptize means to dip or to plunge or immerse. It's the idea, for example, if you have a, uh, a sink of water, and, and your coffee cups are dirty because you've been using them, right? 
And so you want to clean, clean them off. And so the idea is that if you take that coffee cup and you plunge it down in that water and you clean it and you bring it back out and it's clean. That's the idea. It's that cleansing. It also must be noted that John talks about the importance of believing. He emphasizes that. And the Bible then reveals to us that believing is also important to, for salvation and for pleasing God. For example, in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, also on down a few verses in verses 37 and 38. In those two scriptures, it says that those people believed, and as a result, they were baptized. They were cleansed. Notice what one commentator says about this water baptism. The water points to the need of spiritual cleansing. The need of spiritual cleansing. You see, these people are aware of cleansings and washings and ceremonial baptisms brought about by the blood and Spirit of Christ, the Lamb of God. However, by not baptizing in person, but through the agency of others, Jesus manifests himself as being greater than John the Baptist. Now that's important because what's about to happen. But John is also, remember, about 20 or 30 miles away uh, in the land of Anon because there's much water there. John is still preaching the idea of repentance and then being immersed in baptism. He's still declaring like he did in Luke, like Luke chapter 3 and verse 3 tells us. He's still declaring, I'm preparing the way of the Lord. I'm the forerunner that Isaiah talked about. It's quoted there in John 1, Luke 3, Mark and Matthew as well. And the Bible tells us that all of this has taken place before John. You remember the Bible tells us uh, in Matthew and other places that John had been uh, put in prison. But all of this is happening before that. Verse 25 is interesting. A dispute or an argument breaks out between John's disciples and some Jews, some your version may say a Jew, about the idea of purification. Purification means cleansing or purifying or washing. You see what I'm talking about? They are aware of this. They're so aware of this that they get into arguments about it. And so here John's disciples and this Jew or Jews, they get into this argument about purification. Baptism, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, is also a cleansing, a washing. Uh, one version says uh, there is, they are discussing and arguing about ceremonial washings. 1 Peter 3 and 21 talks about baptism. It's not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but it's that, that conscience, that, that spiritual renewal. One, one commentator said this, The argument was begun by the disciples of John who probably ascribed superior purifying efficiency to the baptism of their teacher, John the Baptist. Filled with dissatisfaction caused by the constantly increasing multitudes which gathered about Jesus, the gradually dwindling crowds which remained with John, the disciples of John ran to the Master with the words of bitter complaint. You see what's happening here? They get into this argument, they get into this uh, uh, dispute, and now they're going back to John and says, But John, look, don't you see what's happening? And they said, and I, I want you to notice what the New International Version says. Rabbi, 
that man who was with you, they didn't even call his name, on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. It's almost like they're pitching a a two-year-old temper tantrum and saying, John, they're going and we're not. They've been worked up by this Jew or these Jews and now they're, John, they're growing and we're not. They're baptizing more people than we are. Isn't it interesting how followers or certain, certain preachers put them in a competition against one another? Isn't that interesting how that happens? No, we all like certain people that we enjoy listening to, right? I, I have those uh, select few that I enjoy listening to. That doesn't mean that I don't want to listen to anyone else that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ or anyone else that teaches from God's Word. Sure, there's those ones I enjoy, but isn't it sad when, when followers of certain pre- preachers and speakers create this competition between the people that they like the most. And that's essentially what's happened here in John chapter 3. Isn't it sad? Maybe those arguments or that competition begins innocently. But it's always, there's always the undercurrent of Satan involved in that, isn't it? Because that's how Satan works. That's what he wants to happen with us. You see, neither of those preachers, they, they don't really want that competition, but that's what happens. Satan begins to cause us to think that they we're in competition with each other. He wants us to choose sides. He wants us to work against one another, whether it's a preacher against a preacher or whether it's a Christian against a Christian. That's what Satan wants. Revelation chapter 4 is a beautiful scene. We studied that this morning. Beautiful throne throne room scene to realize the awesomeness and the power of God. And we may mention about when we come together, God is in His most holy place and the Bible calls that the church. But never underestimate who else is also here. Satan. And Satan wants nothing more than to distract us. Satan wants nothing more than to divide us right down the middle. Which all goes back to the initial slide. I'm not sure if you saw it. The light bulb. What's your focus? What's my focus? Satan has been doing this since the beginning of time. Remember in Genesis chapter 3? What did he do to Adam and Eve? Oh, he changed their focus, didn't he? What did he do? Oh, Satan, even with Jesus, well, even with, with in Genesis chapter 3, he would change what God had said, use what Scripture has said to change their focus. So how would John handle this? How would John handle this dispute? His disciples coming to him and saying, Hey, they're baptizing more than we are. John answered and said, No man can receive anything unless it is given to him from heaven. Hello? John? 
Do you realize what a great speaker John the Baptist was? Crowds and flocks of people came to hear John the Baptist. Did you hear what John the Baptist said? No man can receive anything unless it's given to him from heaven. One commentator said the herald of Christ, what he meant to say was that everyone God has assigned a place in His eternal plan and that He has no right to lay claim to an honor which has not been given to Him from heaven. John stated a conviction that all ministry and all blessings are from God. And there's no competition. All ministry and all blessings are from God and there should not be any competition. Paul would agree. Uh, turn your Bibles, if you will, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I also want to read this from a different version because I think in, in the New King James Version sometimes some of the thought might get lost. And so I want you to notice um, this language from, from this version. Maybe yours reads like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Also remember uh, what, what Paul had written about and dealt with in 1 Corinthians 1. Are you of Paul? Are you of Apollos? Are you of Christ? And he asked the question, is Christ divided? And notice what he writes to them in chapter 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. Paul is writing this to Christians. You're still thinking worldly, he says. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Paul himself says, what am I? Only servants. Through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but it was God that made it grow. Your version might say it was God that gave the increase. So neither he who plants nor he who waters. Now get what he's saying. I'm not anything. Apollos is not anything. The one who plants, the one who waters, we're not anything. There's no competition. But only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. One purpose. One. Not two. Not three, four, or five. 
one. And each will be rewarded according to his own labors, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. John says, listen, that's not my goal, that's not my purpose, that's not my focus. You see, our gifts are given for God's glory. Let us be careful of never using our gifts, our talents, for our own selfish desires. For our own selfish motives and what we want and the way we think, think things ought to happen. John reminds his disciples that they were present when he originally declared, I'm not the Christ, John chapter 1. He said, I'm not the Christ. I'm only preparing the way. I'm only what Isaiah talked about, and they would know Isaiah. I'm only what Isaiah talked about as the forerunner for Jesus. He then uses that beautiful illustration of a wedding. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. Who's the bride? The Bible says, Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, the bride is the church. Who's the bridegroom? Christ, the head of the church. Once the bride and the groom have been brought together, the role of the best man or the friend who attends is the language in the New King James Version. Their role is accomplished. Now, think about it this way. How sad would it be? How sad would it be at that beautiful wedding ceremony if the best man tries to take the role of the groom? Now, if you're the groom, let me ask you that question. And you see, John says, it's not about me. It's not about me, you disciples pitching a fit. It's not about me. I know my role. And I'm glad to play that role. He's content on being the voice that announces Jesus. Paul talks about the body of Christ and how every part playing its role, doing its part, working together, brings about growth in the body. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4. Warren Wiersbe tells a story about a preacher in Melbourne, Australia who introduced J. Hudson Taylor with all these excessive, glorious, big words, fancy words, building up this gentleman, even using great. And when Taylor stepped up to the pulpit, he quietly said, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. You see, Taylor stepped up and says, Listen, I don't care what this other guy said. I don't care about all the words he used. I am just a simple servant with an awesome and great master. And that's what I'm here to do. To point the way to Him. You remember John chapter 13? Do you remember that Jesus even set this same example for His disciples? We'll study this later down the road when we get to chapter 13. 
How He took on that form of a servant and He tells His disciples, you go and do likewise and you will be blessed if you do so. The Gospel of John tells us that for John the Baptist, it was joy for him to play his role. It was a joy for him that he knew Jesus was there, the one he announced about, the one he proclaimed, the one he prepared the way. It was a joy to him when he knew Jesus was here also fulfilling his role. Which brings us to the whole focal point of the chapter, I believe, this section. I dare to say the whole focal point of the chapter. I would even dare to say the whole focal point of the Gospel of John, even maybe the whole focal point of the Bible. Verse 30. Did you catch what John said? He must increase and I must decrease. Another version says, He must become greater, I must become less. And isn't that the idea? Isn't that what we seek to do on a daily basis anyway? John, you see, did not want anyone to follow him. He realized his ministry was to point people to the Lamb of God and urge them to trust and follow Him. And when John had that focus right, guess what? It didn't matter what everybody else said. It didn't matter that his own followers tried to pull him away and get him to look at this competition and put him in this competition with the Lord. He said, I'm glad to play my role. I'm glad to play my role. Because playing my role means glory for the Lamb of God. So what are we to do? Real briefly, two things. Renew our focus on Jesus. You see, today, today I have to ask myself the question, what is my priority? What are the priorities in my life? What is it is the central focal point in my life? You see, that's the thing that John realized was the most important. There's a story told of a young couple who had recently gotten married. And at that ceremony, at that ceremony, they looked each other in the eye before God and all the witnesses. And they said, Jesus is first. You are second. And I am third. You see, they declared before God and all those witnesses where their commitment lied. Who it was they were most committed to. And you see, if Jesus is first in our life, that will translate to all of our other relationships. If Jesus is first in our life, then guess what? We will love our neighbor as ourselves, right? And you see, that will make all the difference. But where does this focus come from? Where does it start? It starts by declaring every day, Luke would say, Luke 9.23, it would start by declaring every day, it's not about me. 
Imagine if that's our attitude, if that's what we get up saying every day. Imagine how different our families might be. Imagine how different our schools might be. Imagine how different our workplaces might be or our neighborhoods or our community. If the people of God will, will stand up and declare to themselves before God, it's not about me. You see, selfishness seeks its own all the time, and that's dangerous. I want you to notice this on the screen. Do you remember Burger King? You remember those kids' meals at Burger King? They always give out those, uh, those paper crowns. And you know, what does Burger King want people to realize? They, they want these kids to put that crown on their head and say, Hey, guess what? You are king today. You are king. What is their slogan? Have it your way. When you come into our restaurant, you are king. And we want you to have it any way that you want it because you're the one that's most important. Isn't that like our culture? Our culture, Satan, through our culture says, listen, you're number one. You look out for number one. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. It doesn't matter what I think. Guess what? You deserve it, he would say. That's exactly the way Satan, what Satan sells us on today. You can have it your way. You deserve, Barry, you deserve to wear the crown. You're on the throne. And Jesus would say, and show. John the Baptist would declare, and show. No, I'm not on the crown. I'm not on the throne. That crown is not mine to wear. The only crown that I want to be deserving of is that crown of life. When I cross the finish line of death into glory, my heavenly home. But I don't deserve the crown today. I don't deserve to be on the throne. There's only one who deserves that. The one who gave His life for me. His body hung on the tree and He shed that blood and we commemorated that a while ago. John said, He must increase and I must decrease. You know, that's real easy to say, isn't it? I say this often, but it's real easy to get up here and say that. And say, yeah, guys, let's go. It's not about us. But it's a lot harder to do. You see, we can say it. We can tweet it. We can put it on Facebook. We can wear t-shirts that declare it. But living it, oftentimes, can be difficult. Because there's an internal battle in the heart. The battleground is the heart, Galatians chapter 5. The flesh and the Spirit are contrary to one another. You see, the bottom line is, do we really believe it? And are we really practicing it? So the next time you get in an argument... Remember what John said in John chapter 3 and verse 30. He, the Lamb of God, 
must increase and I must decrease. You see, when we focus on Jesus, it changes our whole being and how we act. And then secondly, we need to die to ourselves and live for Christ. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, we sung the song a while ago. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. When we obey the Gospel, when, when our belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God leads to our dying with Him in the watery graves of baptism to rise with Him in newness of life, we have been crucified with Christ. What is it that's crucified? That sinful nature. The way we used to be. Our selfish self. We're no longer our own. We're no longer on the throne. We've placed Jesus on the throne and we surrender to His kingship and lordship. John said, I now live by faith. In this life that I live, live now, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You see, if we are Christians... Our life is not our own. We are representatives of Jesus. If we're going to live the Christian life, we have to live differently from the world. Our time is about up, but I want, to, I want you to write down a scripture or, or write it down in your Bible or, or un, go and underline it later. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Paul says in that passage of Scripture, he says, listen, how can we who have died, we've buried that old self in the water grave of baptism, how can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? No, he's not saying. He's not saying that I'm not going to make mistakes. I'm not going to sin sometimes here and there. What he's saying is, how can we who died to the practice of daily sin practice it any longer? Because, let's check it. There's water. And the Bible says, when I go down that watery grave of baptism, listen, I'm declaring to everyone that's here, all the witnesses before God, listen, I'm surrendering. I'm dying. Because I want a new life. I want a new king. And Paul says, when we do that, we stop the practice of habitual sin. We can't live Christianity on autopilot. We must live as people who have put Christ on the throne of our lives with the attitude like John. He must increase and I must decrease. The great golfer Arnold Palmer recalls a lesson about overconfidence and focus. He says it was on the final hole of the 1961 Masters Tournament. And I had one, a one-stroke lead and I had just hit a very satisfying tee shot. I felt as if I was in pretty good shape, he says. As I approached the ball, I saw an old friend standing at the edge of the gallery. He motioned me over and stuck out his hand and said, Congratulations! I took his hand and shook it, but as soon as I did, I knew I had lost my focus. On my next two shots, I hit the ball into the, to a sand trap, then put, uh, put it over the edge of the green. I missed a putt and lost the Masters. 
You see, John would remind us when we lose our focus, we lose sight of the Master. When our focus is the Master, it makes all the difference in our life and in our relationships. And when our Master is the focus, it doesn't matter what laws our country pass. I'm not saying let's not pray about them. I'm not saying let's not stand up for our beliefs. Not saying that at all. But I'm saying that what our government does doesn't control what I do. What happens on the other side of the globe doesn't control my life, my focus, or where I'm going. John says, listen, I'm glad to play my role. I'm glad to simply point people to the Lamb of God. Today, are you here? It's our prayer that you have been pointed, that you have been directed to the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. John declared, Behold, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have you died in those watery graves of baptism because you do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you're ready to give your life to Him? If not, it's our prayer that you will. Because the Bible teaches that's the way to Father God in heaven. John chapter 14. Maybe it is. You're just here today. I know our time has passed. But is your heart heavy today? Maybe you're here and you need your church family. As we've been able to do over the last few weeks, maybe you just need the prayers of the church. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ to say, listen, I need your help. I need your prayers. The thing is, whatever your need is, we want you to know we stand willing and ready to help you any way we can. As together, we stand and sing. Trust Him in His presence daily live. I surrender.